part of the outreach uh, for our Easter outreach, that would be great. So this morning we are beginning our series in the book of Ephesians and before we have the reading I want to just offer a couple of introductory comments about the book of Ephesians. We're going to be spending uh, the next two months, the next eight weeks in Ephesians so I just want to give a couple of introductory comments before we have the reading this morning. There's about four references to the church of Ephesus in the New Testament outside of the actual letter to, uh, that Paul writes to Ephesus. I'm assuming that the Apostle Paul is the author who wrote uh, the letter to Ephesians while he was in chains, probably in prison in Rome, around the year 61 to 62 AD. And there are, as I say, there's references to the church in Ephesus in a number of places specifically in the book of Acts. In Acts 18, 19, and 20, Paul, well, Luke records how Paul's ministry in Ephesus begins. He spent uh, two, over two years in Ephesus. So he spent three months in the synagogues, teaching to the Jews in the synagogues. We read in Acts 19, 8. And then he went and spent two years in the lecture hall of Tyrannus, and we read about that in Acts 19.10. Luke records for us there that a number of miracles took place. He also records how that caused a bit of a stir, and there was a city-wide riot in Ephesus, and that's recorded in Acts 19. 1 Corinthians 15 and 16, we read that Paul had opportunities in the city, but he also had many opponents. And uh, Paul Trabilco, one of the local scholars, one of the world-leading experts in the book of Ephesians, would suggest that First and Second Timothy were actually written to Ephesus around the year 80 to 100, where Paul is instructing Timothy to counter false teachers, those opponents that were referenced earlier. And then, of course, the other significant reference to the church in Ephesus is in the book of Revelation. In Revelation 2, the first of the seven churches that Jesus writes his letters to is, of course, the church in Ephesus. Uh, he commends them for their hard work, for their perseverance, their intolerance of false teachers, but he also warns them that they've lost their first love. And so that's significant that that letter is written a generation after Paul first wrote his letter to the church in Ephesus uh, back in 60 AD. Just a couple of comments about the city of Ephesus. The city of Ephesus in, 60, in that first century AD was a very large city, a very wealthy city, probably the third largest city in the Roman Empire behind Rome and Alexandrina. It was estimated between 200,000 and 250,000 residents in that city. It was a port city. It was a wealthy city, it was on the trade route between the east and the west, and so it was a very significant uh, city in the Roman Empire. But there was one aspect of the city that dominated, and that, of course, was the Temple of Artemis, the Greek goddess of Artemis. And this temple was massive. It was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, 120 meters long, the columns were 20 meters high, carved out of marble. It was very, very impressive. Now, this 
temple not only dominated the cityscape, the architecture, but it dominated the culture itself. Ephesus was a thoroughly pagan city. The Greek gods, uh, including Artemis, dominated the city. And so I can't overemphasize how much this pagan culture um, was impacted by that temple. It's estimated that in that first century, around a quarter of the households would have had slaves. Now, we're going to hear in a couple of weeks' time about uh, the issue of slavery in Paul's writing. Some of those slaves in the household would have been treated well. They would have been treated as servants. Some of them were treated deplorably. And so some of them would be simply used as sex toys, if you like. The debauchery of first century Ephesus cannot be overstated. Against that backdrop of pagan depravity, Paul paints this revolution of the people of God being called out by God to a new way of living, to a way of being holy. And the distinction and the, the difference between the Christian community and its pagan uh, setting is very, very stark indeed. So, over the next two months, we're going to be journeying through this letter in Ephesus, and it's my prayer that we as a church catch again the vision of the centrality that God has for His church. So, let's just pause for prayer, and then we'll have the reading and unpack that reading. Heavenly Father, as we begin this journey, listening to Your Word listening to your word from the letter to that first church of Ephesus, I pray that by your grace and by your peace, uh, you might minister a fresh revelation of the centrality of your church, the ecclesia, and the plan that you have for us, the eternal purpose that you have for us as a church. So prepare our hearts to receive this word. Grant us faith to respond to it, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, if we can have the reading, please, and then we will unpack that reading. So we are reading from Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1 to 14, which is on page 1173 on the Pew Bibles. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. 
With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ, to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we who were the first to put our hope in Christ might be for the praise of his glory, and you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. Amen. This is the word of God. Thank you, Sally. Well, there is a lot of anxiety in the world at the moment, and we've already this morning prayed into some of that anxiety, I trust. Coronavirus is having a profound impact around the world, isn't it? It's impacting global share markets, it's impacting sporting uh, fixtures, it's impacting travel, um, it's impacting, beginning to impact the way we're living our life in New Zealand as well. I had a coffee with a friend from ANZ and this week they were given an edict from their head office that they weren't allowed to gather in groups of more than 20 people. That's, so it's beginning to impact uh, New Zealand as well as the rest of the globe. And it impacts us, doesn't it? I was sitting at home last night and I was thinking, oh, I'm not feeling so well. I said to Mary, I'm, I'm getting a little bit hot and uh, I think I'm coming down with something. And, um, and I said, I better take my, my temperature before I head off to church tomorrow. I don't want to be infecting uh, Hope Church with coronavirus. And, and she smiled and gave me the, the thermometer and it was 36 degrees. And then I realized that the that the iron had been left on right beside me and so that might have had something to do with the temperature level rising, I'm not sure. There's a lot of anxiety, not just to do with coronavirus, we live in a culture of anxiety. We live in a culture of uh, anxiety and judgment, I would say. Uh, if For those of you who live in social media land, Praise God, I haven't had to endure it for the last two and a half months, but in social media land, it's all about shame and judgment and like. We, that's the culture that we're swimming in, and God's word speaks a word of grace and peace into that culture. That's how Paul begins his letter to the church at Ephesus. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace. He's announcing the favor of God. He's announcing the shalom of God, the peace of God. That's what he's speaking over the church of Ephesus. That's what he's speaking over us this morning. Grace and peace. If you're sitting here this morning with a degree of anxiety, with a, with a degree of the world sensing to judge you, God would speak a word of grace 
and a word of peace over you this morning. He begins by describing how we are in Christ. The church in Ephesus is in Christ. And that phrase is going to come up time and time and time again. Just in the first 14 verses that we have read, Paul references to being in Christ 11 times or in Him. Uh, That's a theme that's going to continue to shine through this book, so look out for it as we go. I wonder if any of you are familiar with the old hymn that begins, when upon life's billows you are tempest-tossed, when you are discouraged thinking all is lost, count your many blessings, name them one by one, and it will surprise you what the Lord has done. Does anybody know that old hymn? There's a few of you, quite a few of you. I'm not actually that familiar with it, but when I saw it, I thought that's exactly what Paul is doing here. He is reminding the church at Ephesus of the spiritual blessings that you have in Christ. Look at verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Every spiritual blessing, he says. God the Father has blessed the church with every spiritual blessing in Christ. And then he goes on to name some of them. And I can see at least seven blessings that Paul goes on to name in these next few verses. So in verse 4, he says, He has chosen us. God the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ has chosen us. Last Monday, I shared my testimony uh, with some renegade men and a few women, actually, out at, uh, out at Mosgiel. And I shared how I came to faith, how I was saved on the 6th of May in 1995. I often reflect on, when did I get saved? And I said, I got saved on the 6th of May in 1995. But did I really? Did I really get saved on that day when I confessed Jesus as Lord? Or did my salvation begin 2,000 years ago when my Lord gave his life for my life? When did I get saved? Well, Paul would say, God actually chose me before the creation of the world. God has chosen you before the creation of the world. Can you get your head around that? Can you get your head around the scope of that truth that Paul is saying here? Before the earth was created, before the sun was created, before anything was created, God the Father chose you and said, you're going to be a part of my family. You're going to be a part of my family. That's the first spiritual blessing that Paul names here. He has chosen you before the creation of the world. God is a God who chooses his people. He's the one who initiates your salvation. It starts with him. He's been doing it from before the beginning of time, he says. And then in time, he begins to choose people. He chooses Noah. He chooses Abraham. He chooses Moses. He chooses David. And then, significantly, he chooses the people of Israel. And listen to the language in Deuteronomy 7, 6, where he talks about this choosing, one of the spiritual blessings. He says, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of the people on the face of the earth to be his people, a treasured possession, Deuteronomy 7, 6. That language 
is the very language that Paul is using here. He uses it in verse 4. He uses it again in verse 14 of being a chosen people, a treasured possession. It was Israel, and now Paul is saying it is the church. It's you, Ephesus. It's you, Hope Church. You're a chosen people, and guess what? Before the world was created, God the Father has chosen you. That's the first spiritual blessing that I discern in these first few verses. Then he goes on to say what? We've been chosen to be holy and blameless. You've been chosen to be holy and blameless. You've been set apart by God. That's the, that's the meaning behind being holy. To be holy and blameless. When God looks at you in Christ, there is no appropriating blame. He says you are holy, you're set apart, and you're also blameless. There is, there is nothing that God blames in you when you are in Christ. Why? Because he sees his son. He sees the righteousness of Christ, holy and blameless. That's the second spiritual blessing. He goes on to say that we have been predestined in love. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will, verse 5. Now, this reinforces the first blessing that we have been chosen. It was predestined, Paul says. To be adopted means to be a deliberate choice. A deliberate choice has taken place in the heart of an adopting parent. Here, the adopting parent is our Heavenly Father, the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. He has deliberately made a choice and says, you are going to be a part of my family. You're adopted into the family of Christ. The next blessing I see significantly, remembering the context that he's writing into, into the context of Ephesus, he says in verse 7, in him we have redemption through his bloods. Redemption, literally a ransom has been paid to bring slaves out of slavery. And he's saying to the church in Ephesus, you have redemption through the blood that was shed. Remember how I said how the household master would often treat the slaves as mere chattels, often as sexual chattels, to gratify their sexual desires and whims. So the bondage of a slave in first century Ephesus, I would say in my language, was hell on earth for many of them. It was hell on earth. They yearned to get out of the slavery. Some of them depending on their master's whim, might be accorded uh, a reasonable place in their household. Some of them, it would have been hell on earth. To be rescued and ransomed out of that bondage, they yearned for that. So when Paul speaks of redemption here, he is speaking of a freedom that they would cherish. A ransom has been paid to purchase their freedom. That's the fourth spiritual blessing that he articulates there. And then significantly, he goes on to talk about the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace. Now, in 2020, in the church, for those of you who have journeyed in the church for a while, forgiveness of sin is something that is very central and something very familiar to you. But just try and put yourself back 
into that Ephesians context, that pagan culture. And for at least his Gentile hearers, for the non-Jews, this forgiveness of sin was a very foreign concept for them indeed. For the Jews and the Hebrew Scriptures, this was very familiar. So Paul spent three months in the synagogues. They would have understood the forgiveness of sin. But then he goes out into the lecture hall in the Tyrannus Hall, and he's, he's teaching there for two years why? Because the worldview was so counter to what Paul was describing here. First century Ephesus had no concept of sin. Their moral constraint was governed by the city-state. It was an honor and a shame environment. So shame was the only means by which the people in Ephesus would control their morality. Sin is a theological category, and Paul is articulating a new message for his pagan hearers, that God, the Father of Jesus Christ, demands nothing less than holiness for his children who carry his image was, was foreign to the pagan hearers in Ephesus. It was a radical revolution that was being articulated to them. The pagan gods of Rome and Greece were violent, decadent, depraved, and often hostile to God. And now Paul here is presenting a transcendent God, a God who is holy, a God who is demanding of holiness, a God who has imparted dignity to every human being and expects every human being, whether they are the master of the house or the slave, whether they are a prostitute or whether they are an aristocrat, every image, every person carries the image of God and so must be treated with image. This message that Paul is describing here is a radical message. This week I heard a lecture from Tom Holland. I think he's a humanist, uh, an English scholar, and he was describing the Me Too movement. He has no vested interest in Christianity, but he's a historian. And in this lecture, I heard Tom Holland speaking about the Me Too movement, and he was saying the only way that the Me Too movement could get traction like it has in the last two years, and so the likes of Harvey Weinstein and Bill Cosby and other sexual predators could be locked up and put away to face their judgments, the only reason that could gain traction in our culture was because of the Christian message of the forgiveness of sin. It's quite ironic that in Western culture in the 1960s when we embraced the pagan sexual ethic of free love where anything goes, it's quite ironic how a generation on that has come back to haunt us. And so now we are stepping away from that pagan ethic in some areas, not obviously everywhere, but in Tom Holland's eyes would say it is only the message of Jesus it is only the message that Paul is articulating here of holiness that that Me Too movement could gain traction. The forgiveness of sins. This was a new message for Ephesus, the forgiveness of sin. This is a spiritual blessing that you can know forgiveness of sins because of what Christ has done. 
The sixth spiritual blessing that Paul describes here is that grace has been lavished on us. Grace has been lavished on you. The favor of God has been lavished on you. In the blood of Jesus, in the cleansing, washing, purifying, grace has been lavished on you. The favor of God in love, Paul says, these blessings have been poured out over you like a wave. And the seventh blessing that I see articulated in these first verses is that God has made known the mystery of His will. A revelation has taken place. God has made known to us what His will is. The Jews were yearning to know what God's will was. For years, for millennia, they were yearning to know what is the will of God, and they thought that it was found in obeying the law. But now, Paul is saying... A new way of discerning the will of God is here in Christ. Question, do you know what the will of God is for you? Do you know what the will of God is for you? Do you know what the will of God is for His church? Do you know what the will of God is for all of creation? Well, I'm about to tell you. I'm about to tell you. Not through any special gnosis or knowledge that I have, but in the revelation that God has given to us in His words. He's made known to us as well. And we'll come to that in a moment. So spiritual blessings. Every spiritual blessing, Paul is saying, is now yours in the church in Christ Jesus. He lists at least seven there. He lists that we have been chosen, we are holy, adoption, redemption, forgiveness of sin, grace, revelation. All of these are spiritual blessings, but Paul says you have every spiritual blessing in Christ. If God the Father is the source of those spiritual blessings, Paul is saying that it is Christ Jesus' Son that is the sphere that those spiritual blessings are experienced and known. God is the source, Jesus is is the sphere in which they come together and in which they are known. And now we come to verse 9 and 10 where the mystery of God's will is revealed to us. Look at it. We can't underestimate the significance of these two verses. He has made known to us the mystery of His will according to His pleasure which He purposed in Christ to put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. What is the plan? What is the purpose of God? He is going to bring in Christ in the fullness of time, heaven and its righteousness, He is going to bring that into connection with the earth in Christ and under Christ, Paul says. A unity, a summing up is going to happen in Christ in the fullness of time when heaven and earth are united. And how are they united, Paul says? They are united under Christ, under His authority, under His Lordship. That's what we're about. That's why we've been called together as a church this morning. That's what we're about, being swept up into the purposes of God, of uniting heaven and earth. God's perfect peace, God's perfect shalom, His holiness. That time is coming when death will be banished, when evil will be banished, when every virus will be banished. There will be no sickness, there will be no tears. In the fullness of time, we will be swept up and heaven and earth will be united under Christ. That's the plan 
that God our Heavenly Father has. It began to take place on the day of Pentecost when the Gentiles were grafted into the people of God's. And Paul in verses 12 and 11, uh, 12 and 13, sorry, references obliquely this message that comes first to the Jews and then to the non-Jews, the Gentiles. Look at verse 12 and 13. He says, In order that we, who were the first to put our hope in Christ, the we that Paul is referencing here is who? It's the Jews. We who were the first to put our hope in Christ might be for the praise of glory. And then he says, and to you, who? The Gentiles, the non-Jews. To you also were included in Christ when? When you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation when you believed. That's when the times reach their fulfillments. When you hear the message of truth, the gospel of salvation, that in Christ there is forgiveness of sins, on believing that God raised Jesus from the dead, a new life is imparted into the church. And what does that new life look like? Well, he describes it in verse 13. You are marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. Remember, Paul begins in verse 3. He's talking about the spiritual blessings that flow from God the Father. You've got every spiritual blessing coming from the Father, who is the source. The Lord Jesus Christ is the sphere in which those spiritual blessings are experienced. And now he says in verse 13 and 14, and how do we know that we are a part of this? Because he has put his spirit within us, the seal, the deposit, the third person of the Trinity. Right there. He's a, he's a seal. He's a promise. He's like a down payment on a church, on a, school, on a house, you might even say. What do we do when we buy a house? When, we, when things go unconditional, we sign along the dotted line, we sign our life away, and we put a deposit down. That's the, the very reference that he's using here of the Holy Spirit. In other words, we've got a foretaste we haven't got the fullness yet of the spiritual blessings. Right now, we have a foretaste of the Holy Spirit in the church. There is more to come, church. There is more to come. So Paul is describing what God has done, what he has done in Christ. And then at the end, in verse 14, he gives us a wee glimpse of why he has done this. This eternal plan, this glorious experience of every spiritual blessing why has he done that well he says at the end for the praise of his glory for the praise of his glory that verse that that phrase gets repeated three times in this paragraph that we've looked at for the praise of his glory for the praise of his glory and grace and then again in verse 14 for the praise of his glory that's why he does it that's why he does it our whole life is an act of worship where our lives begin to reflect back the splendor, the majesty of this King who has created us, who has redeemed us, and who is giving us new life. This week I was sent an article about Jack Hayford, a Pentecostal pastor from Los Angeles in Southern California. 
and uh, the article was entitled The Gold Standard of Pentecostal Pastors. And it referenced the story of when Jack Hayford was a young minister uh, when he was 35 years old and he, he came into establishing or pastoring a little four-square church in Southern California and there was about 18 people in his church at the time. And he was feeling a bit despondent, he was feeling a bit lethargic and a bit spiritually depressed and he was out in his car and he pulled up at the traffic lights and there was a massive Baptist church that was flourishing. God's favor was on this Baptist church. And Jack Hayford, as the story says, he felt the Lord was saying to him, just need to start praying for the churches around you. Start praying God's blessing, my blessing on this church. And that's what Jack did. And in his words, Jack said he began to develop a love for God's church. He began to develop a love for God's church. Hayford built his ministry around two emphases that we could find in the book of Ephesus. The first of his emphases was equipping the whole people of God, and we're going to learn about that in Ephesians 4. But the second emphasis that Hayford had was the priority of worship to the praise of his glory, emphasizing that our lives are to be defined by worship, the one who created us. So we gather this morning to worship because of who God is and what God has done. But it's not just about Sunday. We prioritize this time where we gather to worship for the praise of his glory, but it, it goes through into Monday, a life that begins and ends with God. Monday, Tuesday through to Saturday is a life of worship to the praise of his glory. That defines who we are. That defines how we live. This week I heard a wonderful story about uh, Chuck Swindoll was on a plane and the plane was delayed as a few planes are getting delayed around the globe at the moment and it was sitting on the tarmac and people were getting very very anxious and very very upset and some people were getting very angry and one particular gentleman was incredibly angry with the hostess and he was saying why is this happening and why can't you fix this as if a hostess could get a plane off the ground and he was, he was lambasting this woman and the woman responded with such grace and such dignity and did all that she could to placate the anger in this man who was sitting in the plane and Swindell was so encouraged he went to see the hostess at the back of the plane and he said oh look I just saw the way you interacted with this man and I just want to in part I want to apologize but I just wanted to say what a wonderful wonderful job you are doing and I want to commend your employer who do you work for and I can see you're an employee of American Airlines, and I'd like to write to your boss, who do you work for? And she said, sir, I, work, I don't work for American Airlines. I work for the Lord Jesus Christ. I work for the Lord Jesus Christ to the praise of his glory and grace. Have you ever responded with those words when someone says, where do you work? Who do you work for? I work for the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what a life of worship looks like. A life that begins and ends with God. We don't worry about the consequences, but we acknowledge that our ultimate boss is the Lord Jesus Christ. So what do these first few verses in the book of Ephesus teach us? Well, they teach us first and foremost that God has a plan 
God has a plan, not just for his church, but for all of creation. He's in charge. He has predestined this plan to outwork. And so in the midst of anxiety, in the midst of coronavirus, church, don't be anxious about anything, the word of God says. Don't worry, the Lord Jesus Christ says. Why would the Lord Jesus say not to worry? Because God has a plan and he's in charge. His eternal purposes are being worked out. That's the first thing. The second thing we learn is that heaven and earth will be united under the lordship of Christ. That means that every aspect of your life, every aspect of the city life, every aspect of this creation in the fullness of time will be united under Christ. Heaven and earth, Paul says, will be united under Christ. If that doesn't inspire you, to acknowledge that your employer is the Lord Jesus Christ, then I don't know what will. God is in charge. And all things will be united under Christ. And thirdly and finally, it begins and ends with God. To the praise of his glory, it begins and ends with God. Your life, creation of the world, the redemption of the world, the uniting of all things in heaven and earth, it begins and ends with God's. To the praise of his glory. Does this define who you are this morning? Does your life begin and end with God? In the choices you make, in the decisions you make, in the actions you take, in the way you treat others around you, does it begin and end with God? To the praise of and glory of our God. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you for the treasures that are revealed in this word. Father, we thank you that our life begins and ends with you. We're here this morning to say thank you because that's the appropriate response. For all the spiritual blessings that you've poured out, we can but say thank you. For this profound truth that you have a plan, an eternal plan that you're working out in Christ, we can but say thank you. For the, the call to be holy and blameless, to be seen in your eyes that we are holy and blameless, that we are redeemed, that sins are forgiven, that we have been chosen before the creation of the world. Lord, every spiritual blessing is found in Christ and we can but respond by saying thank you. Thank you. And then for that deep truth that you remind us that you have put a down payment, you've put a deposit in our hearts in the person of your Holy Spirit. As we come to believe, as we hear the message of truth, the word of the gospel of our salvation, as we believe, Lord, you pour out your spirit and I pray that you would do that now as we open our hearts afresh, that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit, that deposit, that foretaste of heaven coming to earth. And so we, we are here to worship this morning. We are here to say thank you this morning. Lord, lead us on in this eternal purpose that you have for the church, for, for not just Hope Church, but for your church the church global, Lord, we want to take our rightful place. We want to take our rightful place. Enable us in that, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.
what an awesome opportunity to respond, guys, that 